And so we're going to simply look to our Lord now in prayer. And our Father, as we are praying, we know that perhaps for other services, people are struggling on the roads to make their way here and give them great wisdom as to how you would have them come, if you would have them come. We pray for your protective hand upon them. But we're also mindful, Father, that in less than ideal circumstances, Joseph and Mary made their way into Bethlehem. She had to be wearied. She had to be challenged by the sheer difficulties of having to make her way forward in the midst of her pregnancy. What we find, Father, throughout the pages is that your people were willing to move forward even in the midst of challenges, to remain focused upon your will. And, of course, the ultimate example would be our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to came into this world to die for our sins. So, Father, in these minutes that you give us here to be together, what we are praying once again is that you would warm these hearts and that you would engage these minds and that you would shape these wills. As once again, Father, we've come here to see Jesus and him only. We're praying these things again now in in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when you and I have sung this great Christmas carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem, once again, what we need to do is to understand the story behind the song. For you see, Phillips Brooks was the one who penned these words. And Phillips Brooks was a rector of the Church of the Advent in Philadelphia. And he was there from 1861 through 1867. But there was a little break in the action before Mr. Brooks then took on Holy Trinity, Trinity Church in Boston, and was there for an incredible ministry of 22 years. There was one year interlude between the two, and that year is the year in which this song was penned. The year was 1868. And as he put it together for you and for me to sing, he was burdened for the landscape spiritually of New England. He'd be arriving on the scene in Boston, and he was looking for a way to be able to minister to the people at their point of need. And what stood out to him was that this very strategic pulpit in the nation at the same time was positioned by God to address the needs of the people, but it seemed as though the people were not addressing the needs themselves. There seemed to be a lack of an understanding of our relationship with God in particular and the whole matter of sin as well. And so he would put out and put before us words such as this, No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. And in that fourth verse, he would then pen, cast out our sins and enter in, be born in us today. We hear the Christmas angels, the great tidings tell, oh, come to us, abide with us, Our Lord Emmanuel. 
And so now what he wanted people to do is to understand that we have to have a consciousness of our sinful nature and that Jesus Christ entered via Bethlehem to go to Calvary to die for your sins and for mine. Now what I want to do with you this morning is to draw out two significant ways in which this particular song ministers to us at our point of need. And I want you to note, first of all, with me, um, uh, the Lord's reign, in terms of the reign of our Messiah. So we pick it up now, and what I want you to see immediately is a contrast, and yet a connectedness, between verse 1 and verse 2. Notice very carefully me in verse 1 that it reads, Now muster your troops. Why does it say that? What seems as though what the Jewish people in Jerusalem in particular need to grapple with is the fact that the Assyrians are making their way 701 B.C. Sennacherib is the emperor over the Assyrian people, and as they are making their way, the Assyrian forces, to the gates to the troops of Jerusalem that are trying to guard, secure the people within the land of Jerusalem, there is a real question. And the question is simply, where's my hope? How will God intervene? How will God protect us? Now, Micah understands very well, it's 8 centuries B.C. of Jesus. In the very same time period in which Isaiah would pen his thoughts as well for the Jewish people, he knows that the people are feeling incredibly threatened and insecure over what the future would hold for them. So now, muster your troops, so daughter of troops. Notice the dual emphasis upon troops. There seems to be this tremendous desire to fortify the city. The Assyrians are coming. Siege is laid against us. The Assyrians would sweep away the ten tribes of the north, of course. Hooks will be placed into the nose, into the nostrils of the Jewish people, and they'd be led to a foreign land, leaving the two remaining tribes alone. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek, the judge of Israel referring in this particular case to the king of the Jews. So the question now is simply, how will God intervene? Which is the tremendous Christmas story as well. In the midst of the chaos of historic world implications, how will God intervene? And what I want you to notice is if this one deals with the invading troops as they're making their way toward Jerusalem, in verse 2, the answer to this invasion is the one who will be born in Bethlehem. Now what I see, and don't you see this so often, is that there tends to be a lack of a connectedness in the Christmas season between Bethlehem and Jerusalem. There may be a great emphasis placed upon the one born in Bethlehem, but the question is, but why was he born, and to what purpose did he come into this world? was to die on Calvary, and he would have to enter the gates of Jerusalem. And now notice in verse 1 how the gates of Jerusalem are being threatened. The answer to this incredible threat of what is taking place against Jerusalem, verse 1, the antidote is the one who would enter this world via Bethlehem, 
in verse 2. Eight centuries before Jesus would walk the soil of Palestine, notice the powerful connection, verse 1, Jerusalem, verse 2, Bethlehem, and how God was already creating that sense of connectedness within the mindset of the people so that they would understand the need for one who would come to intervene far greater than the troops that they could muster at that given point. And that's why a Phillips Brooks then, whose books include the lectures on preaching, which will be carried by pastors throughout this entire over 100 plus years in their senior courses. He would pen this in 1868 so that people would get a real sense of the idea that the big issue at stake here is the issue of sin. And for that to be addressed, we're going to have to see the connection between Bethlehem, where the Savior enters this world, and Jerusalem, where this will be ultimately addressed. And so now, God wisely and strategically fits all this together for you and for me, and notice how it unfolds. But he says, but you. This is now God speaking. In the prior verse and in the subsequent verses, God is speaking through the prophet. But in verse 2, God is speaking directly at this point. And as he speaks directly, he is speaking directly to Bethlehem. And there is almost an exhale. Can you feel it? But you, oh, Bethlehem, you see. Now, Bethlehem means house of bread, house of bread. And so when Jesus was ministering in John chapter 6, what you would notice is that he would refer to himself with being the bread of life. You're going to want to draw a connection in John chapter 6 with what you've seen here in Micah. And as Micah, eight centuries prior, puts this out, he's saying now that there is sustenance here. There's provision here. The harvest is about to come in. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah. Now, mark the word Ephrathah. It stands out for me, and I'm always amazed by this word because it deals with the district in which Bethlehem is found. And you say, well, Gary, why is that so significantly? Ponder this. There was more than one Bethlehem in the time period in which Micah wrote, eight centuries before Jesus Christ. Your God was so interested in being exact, so concerned prophetically eight centuries prior regarding the definiteness of this prophecy, that he would go out of his way to tell you in unmistakable, distinctive terms which Bethlehem this is so that nobody would be confused. Even when wise men would appear on the scene where? In Jerusalem, to make their way where? To Bethlehem. What God is doing is pulling together these various nuances, powerfully eight centuries prior, communicating exactly, distinctly, Uniquely, this shows you the sovereignty of your God at work at this point that he could, to that degree, develop for you and develop for me the exactness of location. Now, 
people today will say, well, it's generally found over there, or I would say it's approximately over there. But what God is saying, it is exclusively right here, and he does so eight centuries prior. You're going to want to underline that word. You're going to want to note the connection you see with Bethlehem and Ephrathah. Why, Ephrathah, that is the place, of course, where Rachel would be buried as Jacob was making his way forward, you see. But also, if you were to turn in your Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 16, you would find that there is this sense of fear, trepidation within the heart, within the mind of a Samuel who has been commissioned by God, you see, to anoint the next king. Now Saul has been less than ideal. The Israelites wanted a king, like all the other nations, but Saul has let them down politically and spiritually. And what you will find time and time again is that no matter where you put your faith when it comes to matters of the political, you will eventually be let down unless you are invested in the eternal. And so what God will do then in 1 Samuel chapter 16 is to instruct and guide Samuel to make his way where? To Bethlehem Ephrathah, where you will find that there is this one who is out in the fields at night and day, tending to the sheep, and there is a winnowing process that unfolds until, and you know the story, eventually God identifies David as the one. And once again, what is God doing? He is using a sense of definitiveness and a sense of exactness so that in unmistakable terms, Samuel will know exactly who it is that God has raised up to be the leader of this nation. Why is that so significant? Because Jesus Christ will be of the line of David. And when Jesus enters where? Jerusalem. From where? Bethlehem. He will do so as people on the streets are shouting out to the one who is the son of whom? David. Is this astounding? So you see the exactness now as God speaks of not merely Bethlehem, but he speaks furthermore of all Bethlehem Ephrathah. And as he does so, what you are pondering is not only the connection in verse 1 and verse 2, Bethlehem and Jerusalem. You are connecting furthermore Jerusalem and Bethlehem as wise men appear on the scene and are instructed to go to Bethlehem. And as they do so, they find the one who is of the lineage of David. And God is busy fulfilling his prophecies. Does this warm your heart? I find myself in awe in my devotions when I'm reading Micah. And I pause over the word Ephrathah. And I say, that is my sovereign God at work. And if he can be that definitive eight centuries prior, he can be that definitive in guiding Magi by star to Jerusalem and onward, you see, to Bethlehem. But we squeeze that out of the first part of verse 2. Now you continue on in verse 2, and you'll notice that it goes on to say, who are too little 
to be among the clans of Judah. Now, the word little was the very same word that Gideon used to describe himself when he felt so threatened over the Midianite forces that were invading Israel. It seems like all of these stories have to do with some form of invasion, some form of terroristic activity upon the boundaries and the landscape you see of Israel. So there in the book of Judges, you will find Gideon, furthermore, referring to himself before God as one who's just so little among the clans. But what God delights in doing is to take that which would be overlooked, that which in the eyes of the world seems to be so underwhelming, and then choose to use the Bethlehems of this world, use to choose the Gideons of this world, use to place an embryo within the Mary of this world to accomplish something significant out of something that is seemingly so small. He was a Moravian missionary. His name was George Smith, and he had given himself mind, body, and soul to minister to the peoples of the continent of Africa. He had only led one, two people to the Lord over the course of his entire extensive ministry. But he died continually praying for Africa. In his own, in his own diaries, he referred to himself as a failure. But then there's the rest of the story. For you see, there was this company of people, a tribe, that made their way into the region in which in which Mr. Smith had, had ministered and died. They themselves were a terroristic group. But they came upon his Bible. One of them began to read it out loud to others. Some came to know the Lord. They in turn shared with others. And over a hundred years later, his mission counted more than 13,000 people who come to saving faith. As they pondered the significance of that Bible with his notes found in it. And the diary that was lying next to his Bible. Don't underestimate small things. Don't underestimate the embryo within the womb of a Mary. Don't underestimate a Bethlehem and how it connects to a Jerusalem. God has a way of taking that which is seemingly so small, and he connects it to something that is so large, his sovereign plan. He can take the Bethlehem Ephrathos. He can powerfully work through a missionary whose last name was Smith. And out of all this, do something astounding that brings glory to his name. And if you feel like your own personal efforts, day in, day out, maybe at work, maybe in your extended family, maybe in your neighborhoods, seems so underwhelming. Entrusted into the one who is so overwhelming and allow him to do his work in his time for his glory, you see. You're still working, verse 2. Who ought too little, even a Gideon would have felt that way, too little to be among the clans of Judah. But then notice what comes next. From you shall come forth. But now the purpose of this. For me. 
What God is saying is that he is taking something that seems so insignificant in the eyes of people, on the geographic landscape, and he, the sovereign one, who is Lord of the entire universe, has chosen this speck of geography, and now what he is doing is he is addressing Bethlehem directly. From you, I have sovereignly chosen you, shall come forth. It carries with the idea of one who lived beforehand that is simply coming through. Now there is your Jesus. From you shall come forth, and now is your purpose. I would like to think it's for me. But notice how it reads. This is God speaking directly to Bethlehem at this point. For me. He's referring to himself. One who is to be ruler in Israel. And so now the Magi from the east will arrive on the scene in Jerusalem, be guided towards Bethlehem as they're grappling with this idea, who is the one born king of the Jews? Now what you will notice at this point, I'm fascinated by the Hebrew, is that God has sovereignly chosen the word ruler rather than king here. And there's a reason for that, because eight centuries prior king carried with it pagan connotations. Pagan connotations. God knew that, and so he chose the exact word necessary to communicate what he wanted the people to fully embrace. And so what would be of significance was the idea here that he chose the word ruler. He will come for me. He will come from you. He will be ruler in Israel. Did you notice the prepositions here? From you, for me, in Israel. There's your sovereign God at work. And then he now uses a poetical description to describe an eternal truth. Whose coming forth is of old. In other words... He lived before entering into Bethlehem. His coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And so now, this is poetic language to describe eternal truths. And what God is saying at this point is that God has set something of significance aside for these people. Now, what I want you to see here, that just from verse 2 alone, What you have just spotted is the first coming of Jesus Christ. It carries on in verse 3. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, and then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Already what God is doing at this point with his messianic plan in mind, Even before this has been formally executed in Bethlehem at the time of Jesus Christ's birth, he's already talking about the regathering of God's people. Here the Assyrians are going to sweep away of the ten tribes to the north. The two tribes remaining will eventually be taken captive, not by Sennacherib of the Assyrians, no, but rather by Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians. They will go into captivity and then be returned after 70 years. 
what I want you to see here is that already God is prophetically speaking of the fact that there will be a regathering of the Jewish people that you and I still anticipate in its fullness, but already in 1948 has begun to take place when they regain statehood nationwide. So verse 1, excuse me, verse 2 and verse 3 then deal with the first coming of this Messiah that pictures for you and for me his reign. And so then, when Jesus Christ is being questioned throughout the course of his ministry, are you king of the Jews? Well, Magi could have answered that question, couldn't they? And they didn't come from Israel. They came from the east, guided towards Jerusalem and onward toward Bethlehem. As a Herod is completely shaken over the prospects, you see that his political reign is short-term. And Jesus Christ, promised eight centuries earlier with such definity that we would be able to say, Bethlehem Ephrathah is eternal. Now, there's your first coming pertaining to the reign of Jesus, the reign of the Messiah. Notice the second coming flows out of verse 4, 5, and 6, the second coming of the Messiah. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock. Now, when you read that, you've got to bear in mind that the idea of the shepherd flows naturally out of the Old Testament story of David in 1 Samuel chapter 16. Where did Samuel find David? Out in the fields, doing what? Shepherding the flock. You're going to want to draw a connection to John chapter 10, where what you will find is Jesus himself in verse 11, saying, I am the good shepherd. And then later on, in that same chapter, beginning in verse 27, he would go on to say, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. How can such a one give eternal life unless he is the great shepherd who not merely was born in Bethlehem, but preceded Bethlehem, and was able to fulfill the prophecies of old with such exactness that you and I are able to say it's not merely Bethlehem. It's Bethlehem Ephrathah. And you're drawing a connection, you see, between verse 1 and verse 2, and already anticipating how he would then enter in Jerusalem to die for our sins. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock. How? In the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great. How far? Here's the irony of it all. To the ends, the ends of the earth. Now would you draw a line back to verse 2, where it spoke of, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little among the clans of Israel. And you draw it down, you see, to verse 4. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. 
Do you see how God took something so small and in his prophetic and at the same time sovereign purposes created something so large that he could then already begin to create this forward movement where in 1948 and onwards the regathering of these people occurred and people were able to say this is our sovereign God who reigns over all. It was 1949. One year after statehood, when David Ben-Gurion, leader of Israel, would announce globally Israel's policy, consisting of bringing all Jews to Israel, and then he would go on to say, quote, we are still at the beginning, unquote. All of this is consistent now with what is being stated here eight centuries prior to Jesus. And because of that, he would be able to say in verse 5, and he shall be their peace. Now draw a line from verse 5 back to verse 1, because here the Jews are in Jerusalem. What does the name of Jerusalem mean? Jerusalem, you see. Shalom, peace. They are feeling incredibly threatened by the people, by the forces surrounding them. They need somebody to come to intervene. Here is the one born in Bethlehem to die in Calvary, going through the gates of Jerusalem to get there. And we are told here in the heart of verse 5, He, not your troops, He, not your weaponry, He, singular, singular, shall be their peace. And now you're starting to see the movement and the connectedness of all of these verses, you see. Is this astounding? So now you spotted the first coming with regard to the Messiah's reign in verses 2 and 3. And you're in the process of deciphering the second coming of the Messiah's reign in verses 4, 5, and 6. And you're pondering the significance of what David Ben-Gurion in 1949 would say, not merely nationally, but globally, with regard to the influx of Jewish people from all quarters of the earth. And who would have even thought of that during the course of World War II, that such a thing could happen? But you read on. And now he takes you right back, you see, to the threat of Jerusalem and the Assyrian troops. He, he keeps moving, you see, and he creates this sense of healthy tension between present and future. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. You say, well, Gary, what do we mean by that? Seven or eight, can't you make up your mind? Well... This was a poetic description that was used in that time period. Particularly, you will find it in the book of Proverbs, where a number is stated, and then they will say, yet. In other words, it's the X plus one formula that is used poetically and prophetically throughout the scriptures, but was used in that time period as well. So you might be reading, say, in Proverbs, and come across a certain number, and then there's a comma, yet, and then another number, one addition. This is meant for emphasis, to capture your attention. And so now, what Micah is doing is capturing the attention of his readers. 
then we will raise up against him, raise against him seven shepherds. And notice now the tremendous emphasis still upon shepherding. This is still rooted in Samuel seeking out David in 1 Samuel chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. We'll raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. And then if that isn't enough in terms of this whole matter of emphasizing the pasture, and they shall shepherd the land, you see, of Assyria with the sword. Now, Assyria has to be combined now with the Babylonians, who in 586 will come, you see, and conquer the remaining tribes of the south, And Nimrod, well, that is part of Babylonia. And the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And you read about Nimrod in your book of Genesis. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. There is something of significance, isn't there, about this shepherd and bringing peace his people. Do you remember the story? You sure you do. Ira Sankey was traveling by steamboat up the river of the Delaware. The Delaware. It was a calm evening. It was a quiet evening. And of course, he ministered along with D.L. Moody. And he was asked to sing the hymn, Savior Like a Shepherd Lead Us. Now connect what I'm just saying to the amount of shepherding being spoken of in these verses. There was a man who approached him. Can you remember when you were doing picket duty on a bright moonlight night in 1862, a passenger asked him? Yes, said Sankey. So do I, said the stranger. But I was serving, you see, in the Confederate Army. And when you were singing, I had my gun cocked. I was ready to shoot you. But I had to take my finger off the trigger. I said to myself, let him sing the remaining verses of his song. But the song you sang then was the song you sang just now. And I heard the words perfectly. We are thine, do thou befriend us. Be the guardian of our way. And when you had finished singing your song, it was simply impossible for me to take aim against you. And I thought to myself, the Lord who is able to save that man from certain death must surely be great and mighty, and my arm dropped by my side. And since then, I've wondered, and I've wandered. But just now, I've had the opportunity of listening to you sing, and my heart is being wounded by your song. And I'm wondering if you can help me find the antidote to what's troubling me. And Sankey walked up to him, put his hands on his shoulders, and led that man to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And as Sankey's biographer tells us, at that point, that man was introduced to the Good Shepherd. Now what I want you to see here on this snowy morning is how your sovereign God, in his sovereign reign, has in verses 2 and 3 revealed his reign through the first coming of Jesus Christ, using even the, the definitive nature of Bethlehem Ephrathah, even though there was more than one Bethlehem in that region. 
Second of all, reveals himself through the second coming of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and how all that fits together with the idea of shepherding, starting with Samuel looking for David and making his way to the one who had been singled out by God. Now, verse 2 down through verse 6 deals with the reign of the Messiah. Then verse 7 down through verse 9 deals with the remnant of the Messiah. Notice carefully now as he continues to project ahead. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be. Why does he choose Jacob? Jacob, of course, his wife was Rachel. Where was Rachel buried? Bethlehem, Ephrathah. He's continuing to connect the dots for you and for me. And so the Jewish people, of course, are the descendants of Jacob, renamed Israel. So then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many people. So now think of the dispersion, not only of the Assyrians taking away the ten tribes to the north, but furthermore the Babylonians removing the two tribes to the south. How all of this fits together, then God brings a sense of return. The Jews return, and now the remnant shall be in the midst of many people. And now poetically, because Micah seems to have a real sense of how to use words well. Notice the words like, which appear not once but twice. Like dew from the Lord. He is still describing the pasture land. He's saying, in essence, I have put my people out in the pasture. Like showers on the grass which delay not for a man, nor wait for the children of man. Not once, rather twice, is the heavy use of the word remnant. It appears there again. You saw it in verse 7. You see it again here in verse 8. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations. So what God is saying is that I am protecting my people. I am preserving my people. And so he makes the promise of his reign, the Messiah's reign, and then he provides the protection for the remnant, the Messiah's remnant. The promise, the protection, the reign, the remnant. Not once, but twice, use of the word remnant. And the remnant of whom Jacob, notice the repetition, seven and eight, shall be among the nations. And so God had ordained the Israelites to be a light to the nations. They would be among the nations. And that even when they were dispersed among the nations and then regathered within Israel, what we will find is that the light ought to be going on in the midst of the darkness globally. How do you explain this? Except that there's a sovereign God who has sent Messiah via Bethlehem into Jerusalem toward Calvary to die for our sins. Noting the word like, he used it regarding the dew in verse 7. Now he uses it like the lion in verse 8. Like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep. He still loves the idea of the pasture. Which, when it goes through, now he's describing the Jewish people in that final day. Treads down, tears in pieces. There's none to deliver. 
projecting ahead towards Armageddon. And so there is both a near and a distant element to this one singular promise that combines rain and remnant, all under the auspices of God's plan, that combines promise, you see, with protection. And then in verse 9, you see it come together. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries. All your enemies shall be cut off. Speaking of that final day, when everything comes together, all things, you see, for the glory of God. So there you have it. You've got a Phillips Brooks who's got one year between his ministry in Philadelphia and his historic ministry in Boston. There's a statue there in Boston that still stands outside Trinity Church this very day. And whenever I walk past it, I think of that one-year interlude and how Brooks found a way to be able to communicate these eternal truths in such powerful ways to be able to grip hearts. And we realize that humanity is gripped in sin. Humanity is in desperate need of a Savior. And God broke in. And via Bethlehem, on the road to Calvary, through the gates of Jerusalem, God superintends his plan for his purposes, all for his glory. Let's stand together. Now, Father, you're the sovereign God. Whether it be using geographic expressions of exactness like Bethlehem Ephrathah, choosing to use the word ruler rather than king to avoid pagan connotations, pulling together your promise with a sense of protection, your reign with this remnant. You tie all this together to bring glory to your Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so, Father, when we see this and we ponder this, we can see how the Matthew 2 story that we'll look at Christmas Day comes alive. We're a God who could with such exactness speak of these truths eight centuries prior to Christ walking the soil Palestine and to do it in such a way we are left with no doubt. Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be. Came to do what he set out to do. And as a result, if we put faith and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior, we have eternal life with the eternal Savior. And we give you all the praise now. In Jesus' name.